Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Richard Hanania. Richard is the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology and a visiting scholar at the University of Texas's Salem Center. He's also the author of a new book called Public Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. Richard, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me, Oren. It's public choice theory and the illusion oh, of grand strategy. I'm sorry. Okay. A little off. There we go. All right. We'll dive into that. Now, in your book, you kind of put forward a theory that U.S. foreign policy isn't necessarily a result of like a grand strategy, which I think we all know, but it's instead more of a collection of major interest groups acting on the political system. And you single out three kind of actors as being most powerful, the generals, the defense contractors, and foreign governments. Can you take us through like why you singled out those and where they play with each other? Sure. I don't know if everyone is on board with the thesis. I think that if you listen to a lot of people talk about foreign policy, the idea that there is some kind of grand strategy tends to be baked in in a lot of the discourse. And it's Oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. Yes. And it's also, I mean, if you pay attention to the scholarly literature, it's sort of the foundation of the field. I mean, the reason there is, and this is a very crude simplification, but the reason that there is a field called international relations is because there's something unique about international relations. And usually there's a premise that states are unitary rational actors and they behave in certain ways. And there's something different about international relations that isn't just normal economics or political science or public choice theory. And so what's the thesis that people understand interest groups are out there. I'm arguing for taking it a lot more seriously than most people do. Now, as far as those groups, yeah, there's generals. That's often a shorthand for just the national security establishment. And the focus on these three groups is basically, I mean, I was interested in international relations and foreign policy, just looking at the major international issues to seeing how the US was approaching issues like NATO, was approaching issues like the war on terror, which has calmed down a bit, but when I was coming of age was the biggest geopolitical issue, the rise of China. And I kept noticing that there was really a lot of sort of There were these interest groups that again and again tended to exert disproportionate influence. Generals, I mean, that's a shorthand for sort of a national security establishment. This is what Trump would call the deep state. And he thinks they're partisan, but I think they're more committed to certain ideas and certain policies than they are to any particular party or candidate. You would see these people and they would have a big influence, for example, on the Afghanistan war. We had three straight presidents who were skeptical of the Afghanistan war, Obama, Trump, and then finally Biden before we left Afghanistan. And each step, I mean, the generals and the national security establishment made it very, very difficult for them to withdraw from Afghanistan. They were basically pushing for the same strategy. It lasted 20 years. They outlasted Obama. They outlasted Trump. Finally, near the end of the Trump administration, there was agreement that Biden stuck to. Weapons manufacturers is another big one. There are a handful of companies, Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, particularly Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Boeing has commercial aviation and such. But a lot of these other contractors, they rely just on or almost exclusively on government contracts for their income. So they're gigantic corporations that they don't exist. I mean, without government, Raytheon doesn't have a substantial consumer base that it relies on. It's a very indirect influence. So there's things that scholars have talked about. For example, they would have these plants and they would put these defense production plants in different districts. So different congressmen have an interest in keeping things going. 
One thing people I think don't know as much about is the fact that a lot of these groups are actually funding sort of a marketplace of ideas. So when you do see people advocating for a certain- Like visit, a think tank or something like that. Think tanks, yes. They put people on boards, like Nikki Haley was on the board of Boeing, and I don't know, she had some disagreement with them on left. Any general you can remember or any sort of national security figure from five, 10 years ago, if you see them quoted in the media or if you see them writing an op-ed or something, look at their current affiliation. Usually the current affiliation is not there. And usually it's a defense contractor or usually it's a government contractor with an interest in the- And they're also interested in the defense budget being large. In some ways, they get a vig on the defense budget. So if the defense budget is $2 trillion, they get their 1%. If it's $1 trillion, they might still get their 1%. And so they want it to be as large as possible, I presume, right? That's interesting. And that's right. They do just have an interest in bigger budgets. And sometimes what the military budget is used for is almost secondary. There's a lot of people who basically, you can watch their sort of intellectual trajectory over time, a lot of intellectuals, and they're basically just going with whatever sort of the issue of the day was. One threat dies down, we hear about the next threat. After the Cold War was over, we started hearing about rogue states. We started hearing about responsibility to protect genocide. These things didn't objectively go up. Like in the 1990s, there weren't like a lot of like small state wars to any significant extent. But because the Cold War was done, there was something needed to do. They did that. 9-11 happened. That was another pivot. I think that the rise of China, I mean, even though there's something real about it, obviously, China is becoming a global superpower. People always knew that. I think that a lot of the attention towards China sort of turned when the war on terror died down, and that couldn't really be justified. People got sick of the land wars in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. Even if we said, okay, we're going to have the military fight against climate change or something, they probably still do fine. These defense contractors, they get their VIG either way. Whatever the defense department is doing, they're probably going to take a piece of it. That's right. I mean, there's only like a few companies that these services or these weapon systems rely on. So they're the natural constituency that would benefit. It doesn't mean that they're always bad at what they do or they're always- No, of course not. Yeah. They can be incredible what they do. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've seen that since my book was published first, there was Operation Warp Speed, which the military was handling a lot of logistics and it was by all accounts an amazing- Did a really good job. Exactly. And then the Ukraine conflict, I think we've seen I think American technology, military technology has proved very impressive. So that doesn't mean it's always nonsense. Just They're just robbing the taxpayer blind. Occasionally, they can't do things that are very impressive. And so there's national security establishment, there's defense contracts, and often foreign governments. Foreign governments have a huge role to play. In the run-up to the Iraq war, I have a, and this example is not exactly a foreign government, but it's a foreign interest group. I have an article about Ahmed Shalabi in the website War on the Rocks about his influence. He was this Iraqi exile. He was amazingly influential. He was amazingly influential. Especially with the Defense Department in the U.S., yeah. And it was interesting. He would bounce around from agency to agency. So at first he was friends with the CIA. They were supporting him. The CIA starts not to trust him. He goes, he makes friends with like these neoconservatives and the Republican establishment. He gets people who are more friendly to him in the defense department. There's two biographies that I rely on. It's actually an amazing story. But this repeats itself throughout American foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, where like it just doesn't matter. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, whether we support Saudi Arabia against Iran or Iran against Saudi Arabia, I mean, they're both theocracies with bad human rights violations. They both have oil, Saudi, more than Iranians. But I mean, there's not like some great moral question with one of these countries being better than the other, or one of these countries naturally being a better ally to the US. I don't think if you sent an alien and he was looking at the geopolitics, he would say, oh, you got to be friends with Saudi Arabia and against Iran. 
some of these things are comical. I mean, the interest group that's very influential on Iran policy is called MEK, which is sort of like this cult that was like an opposition to the Iranian government, which has, there's no indication that they could take over and rule the country or anything, but they're sort of seen as the government in exile by a lot of people, particularly associated with the Republicans, the kind of people who were really into promoting Ahmad Shalabi before the Iraq war. These are the three groups. There's some basis in public choice theory for relying on these three groups. They're small, concentrated interests who have a big stake in the potential outcome. That's what you need. There's theories out there that, oh, it's foreign policy is about capital or it's about supporting the economic interests of the middle class or whatever. Some basic 101 of public choice theory is a good theory that relies on some group influencing public policy. They have to be small and they have to be concentrated, like capital or all rich people. There's a collective action problem. There's too many of them to come together and get something that's in their quote unquote interest. This satisfies sort of the components of what you would expect from these interest groups are who you would expect to be influential given basic economic reasoning. You would think that the United States, since it's the biggest, most powerful country, would be better at influencing foreign governments than the foreign governments would be at influencing the United States. But it seems historically it's been the opposite. I think there was a joke after World War II that even though the British lost their empire, they were still the most powerful country in the world because they were influencing all the U.S. foreign policy, including like the coup in Iran in 1953. How do you think about who should be influencing whom? You have to think about influence in sort of two ways. I think that when countries have sort of an existential stake in the outcome, it's going to sort of focus the mind. That makes sense. Where the U.S. might not really care either way. And so whereas in 1953, the British were going to lose all their oil interests in Iran, this was probably a huge blow to them. Exactly. So if you're like Qatar or UAE, I mean, you're just a very tiny country. You have existential stake in these Middle Eastern conflicts. You don't want Iran to get too powerful. The US is more powerful than Qatar or UAE, but you can imagine them having a big influence in the US. But also, I mean, the US also itself has major influence across the world. Often, if you're a country that your interests sort of coincide with what the American foreign policy establishment wants. I mean, Ukraine is the best, most vivid example of this. And most of the rest of the countries of the former communist bloc, they fear Russia. And the US foreign policy establishment believes in a muscular global role for the US. And so there's there. But then the US can sort of use that to often get things from these countries. They pressure these countries on a lot of domestic things. They promise them economic integration. This stuff can be legitimate. I mean, it tends to be good for these Eastern European countries. There's some countries that like, you're not Qatar, you're not UAE, you don't have a lot of oil wealth, you don't have the competence government structure. I mean, you're just some country in Africa and you barely have a state. I mean, then the US, the NGOs, the people who care about this stuff can have a big influence. I think that's where the US has a lot of influence. It's sort of paradoxical. It's like the closer they are to the US, often they have the least influence. So these Gulf countries, because they don't care, they influence American foreign policy anyway. And America doesn't really want to like pivot to Iran or something. I mean, they can't really cut Saudi Arabia off. I mean, they could, but they don't want to, given just all the other constraints that are going on. I mean, often it's like these countries where U.S. is hostile, where like the governments fear like potentially America overthrowing them. I mean, I think we're seeing that in Iran right now. I think that the government there is, it's not of exactly American influence, but it's at least American pop cultural and sort of influence in the world of ideas. A lot of people don't like the government. And I think that the government's in fear that eventually there could be a pro-Western regime. Why don't more countries try to really exert their influence on the U.S. by buying U.S. elections. To me, that seems like a very high ROI thing. It might cost a few billion dollars to influence a bunch of Senate races or something like that. Maximum certainly wouldn't cost more than that. To the best of my knowledge, it's not happening at any big level. Like, Why is it not happening? 
there's a more general question of why there's so little money in American politics more generally. Why aren't rich Americans buying? We spend very little money on politics relative to what's at stake. With foreign governments, it's particularly difficult. I mean, because, well, first of all, there are campaign finance laws. Yeah, but you could launder the money and you could, I'm sure a smart intelligence organization for even a friendly country like France, like they might benefit a lot from having a few more senators that were pro EU or something. And the French intelligence agency is very, very smart. Like it seems like it'd be pretty easy for them to funnel some money in. I don't know how easy it would be. I mean, American law enforcement, when it comes to sort of surveillance of money and material and people moving across borders, there's pretty much no civil liberties protection. So, I mean, if you're on a phone with your friend in Latvia or something, or you're sending money back and forth, they have complete insight. They have almost no sort of legal restrictions. And Okay. So you think the reason they don't do it is it's just too hard to do it? It's too hard. I mean, and politically, I mean, again, if it comes out- there'd be blowback if it came out. There is blowback, yes. And there's also like law. So there's foreign agents. So even to hire a lobbyist, like not even give the Senate campaign, you have to declare that you're a lobbyist. You have to go say, you know, I'm being paid by China. Yeah, people have gone to jail for not declaring it. Exactly. So yeah, there are these roadblocks, but then there's an exception in the Foreign Agents Registration Act for scholarly work. So this is why the think tanks, they don't technically have to disclose because they're doing quote unquote scholarly work. So uh, yeah. write a, book, a, book. a lot of universities take a lot of foreign money. Exactly. So yeah, a lot of that is there. It's hidden, but that's sort of indirect. You're influencing Very the indirect, ideas, yeah. hopefully. Like if you think politician. of a primary campaign, let's say, and California are between two Democrats and one is super pro-Taiwan and one super pro-China. I don't know. You would think that both governments would have a lot of incentive to get the other person elected, assuming it was a very close election and some of their dollars or other types of things could move it. I think you're right. I mean, in addition to all the things we talked about, it's just important to sort of emphasize there's one sort of thing that both parties agree on that's sort of a standard basis of Foreigners do not interfere in our election. Okay, that's fair. Politics. So there'd probably be too much repercussions, even if they tried it. Or There is, yeah. So it's law plus the roadblocks, plus just the difficulty and the political blowback that's there. Yeah, exactly. Now, Eisenhower's farewell address was kind of a warning that we don't get captured by defense contractors. I think he said, like his quote was, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex and kind of name that military industrial complex. How do you think we've fared since that 1961 speech? I think people keep citing that Eisenhower speech, I think, because it was quite prophetic. I mean, it's amazing to think about the shift in sort of America itself, conception, its role in the world before World War II and after. The idea that we would have bases in dozens or over 100 countries in the world, I mean, I think that would have struck any American before 1945 as absolutely crazy. There's a standard history of this. I mean, nobody, it's not like anyone's unaware of this. It's like World War One. they blame the U.S., for pulling back. And then World War II happened. And the idea was that the US learned at that point that it needed to be sort of everywhere and always. It's hard to test that theory because it's like, it's a sample size of one. And who knows if the world in 1945 was the same as the world in 1919. And we can't rerun the experiment and have America be isolationist after 1945 and see what happened. But I think the fact that the foreign policy establishment keeps doing the same things over and over, that there is no sort of substantial pulling back. I mean, the Cold War ended and the best example is, again, is the Cold War ended and we continue to expand NATO. I mean, the entire point of NATO, I mean, what it's doing today, the mission today is just unrecognizable. Like, yes, it's still about Russia, but the threat originally was that Russia would invade Western Europe and take it over. And the US cared about Western Europe. 
after the Berlin Wall came down, after the Soviet Union collapsed, the U.S. just started expanding eastward. Now, a lot of people might say, well, those countries had a good reason to be afraid of Russia, given that Russia just invaded Ukraine. But people who are more anti-interventionist will say, no, it was actually moving towards Russia's borders that caused this thing. Well, why place. is NATO expansion like so bipartisan in the United States? Like To me, it just seems obvious, like the more countries in NATO, the more likely we get drawn into a war. If there's 10 countries in NATO, that it's the percentage chance to get at war is X. If there's 20 countries in NATO, it might be 3X to get into war. But like when we had this recent vote to get Sweden, Norway, whatever into NATO, it was like 95 to one. It was like one person voting against in the Senate. Like, why is it so bipartisan? I mean, the original NATO expansion is interesting because the one in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. So like, I think there was one in 1997. And then another one a few years later, it was started with Poland and Hungary. And then it went to like the Baltic states. This was done with pretty much, I mean, no debate. I mean, it wasn't like a live issue in American politics. I talk about in my book, the guy who was one of the sort of main lobbyists for this was actually a Lockheed Martin executive named Bruce Jackson. And you think, well, is one Lockheed Martin executive going to be that important? Well, maybe if the issue is something that nobody else is paying attention to, like they can't change some policy where it's like social security or something that a lot of people know about and care about. But it does seem like that was a pretty big influence. That guy was also involved in the Project for a New American Century, which was sort of a lobbying group that was behind the eventual invasion of Iraq. So this guy was sort of everywhere. And it's very interesting that like sort of drawing the connections there, which I do a bit in the book, but nobody was really thinking about it. If you look back at the time, there was like Polish-American like interest groups were like pressuring congressmen and senators. Every other American group doesn't care, but like the Polish-Americans really cared about being in NATO. Lockheed Martin really cared about the US being in NATO. There was just this sort of hangover from the Cold War. And it was just done completely sort of unthinkingly. Maybe people in the American government thought about it, but people like Congress and the general public, there really wasn't much discussion about it anyway. And it sort of became like once... NATO expansion was a thing you do. It just kept going. I mean, Trump would criticize NATO, but then like there was, I think Macedonia joined NATO during Trump's administration. Like who knows how much he was even paying attention to this. It's so divorced from any kind of American interest. I mean, some of these countries don't really even have militaries. I mean, it's not like it's like a defense alliance and they're not like next to Russia either. So it's like Russia would have to go through like a bunch of NATO countries to like Macedonia. Russia would have to go through other NATO countries to get to it. So like, it makes no sense, even in theory. I think this is a good example of just sort of bureaucracy and government just sort of having this idea that NATO is good, expansion is good. NATO itself, I mean, it's interesting, is itself sort of an interest group. If you go to like NATO's website, you go to NATO Twitter accounts, they have very slick PR. It's quite impressive. It's beyond like what you'd expect from like, say, the American federal government. And if you look at like the comments of like NATO leaders, whenever they're quoted in the media, they're always pushing for the most hawkish position on every issue in Eastern Europe. So like NATO itself becoming like this transnational interest group is also sort of an interesting part of this. Interesting. There was this theory for a while that we could incorporate more authority in countries into the global economy and it would slowly push them to democratize and be more liberal with their citizens. That hasn't panned out. How does that theory work in your framework? I think the big country that people are thinking about is China. And I don't know how many people actually you had to justify the policy to open up trade to China. And I think this was something people relied on, but I really doubt anyone really actually believed that free trade or economic growth would necessarily, maybe it would increase the probability slightly, but I don't think anyone thought that it would necessarily do this. Although I think it was more PR than actual policy. In some ways, like in the past, a little bit, it kind of had happened. Like you saw authoritarian governments in 
South Korea, for instance, and they got democratized over time. And so there were some data points of past things happening like that. It's not the craziest theory in the world. The connection between economic outcomes and Yes. I mean, this was what was pointed out by Fukuyama in the end of history. I mean, there was basically that, and Samuel Huntington too, in some of his work basically showed where countries had a lot of GDP growth, they tended to be more likely to move towards democratization. So it's not crazy. I mean, the thing about the China thing is China is 1.4 billion people. It's like a sixth of the world's population. So it's one government, but like that, what is going to sort of dominate how people see it? The theory, I mean, has some support if you sort of look elsewhere. So there's all these countries that could have gone democracy or non-democracy, like after the collapse of the Soviet Union, these countries became free and the US integrated them into the global economy. And they basically had democracy. And people are saying, oh, Hungary and Poland, there's democratic rollback. I think that's a bit exaggerated. I think these countries are still democracies. It's not a terrible theory. I don't think it would have ever made a lot of sense for that to be the basis. Like US-China trade should have been on the basis of economics just because the outcome on politics was too uncertain. And I think actually that's pretty much what they did do. I think they just thought that free trade was good and they sold it however they could. From my standpoint, it seems that the US foreign policy establishment has gotten many of the little things right, but most of the very big things wrong in the last 20 years. And I checked that theory with Richard Haas, who's the president of the Council for Relations. He was a guest also on World of Das. And I was actually surprised that he agreed with it. How much do you think the establishment is to blame for the big foreign policy failures? I think the wars in the Middle East, I think that this was just a terrible record. Especially, you're saying, going into Iraq, evading Iraq, and then just the prolonged Afghanistan war. Yeah, exactly. But when it comes to, you say, the foreign policy establishment, it depends on who you're talking about. So the Iraq war is interesting because the Bush administration really, I mean, the CIA in the end works for the administration and the Bush administration was really pushing on the WMDs and the CIA had pushback. Now, like the head of the CIA who was appointed by Bush, they did eventually go along and all this, but it's not like it was coming from the CIA or it was coming from the foreign policy establishment. It really was a top-down thing. The Iraq war was really the Bush administration democratically elected like the president rather than the deep state. And then the people he appointed who were the ones who really pushed public opinion in the aftermath of 9-11. Sure. But just to check you on that, I'm old enough to remember this. I remember going to a foreign policy meeting in January of 2003, so right before we entered Iraq. And there was a panel of people. And because it was the way the panels work, most of the people on the panel were people from the prior Clinton administration. And to a person, they were all pro going into Iraq, even at that point, and even the Clinton administration people. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I'll say my reading of I wrote a lot about this in the book. I covered the Iraq and Afghanistan wars pretty extensively. I think that they were going along with public opinion by that point because the Okay, guys. So the public had opinion had already moved. They were just dealing with public opinion. Okay. I'm old enough to remember at the time. It was like virulent. It was like, you traitors, like, how could you like not support this going into Iraq? <laughs> Most Democratic senators voted for Iraq. I don't think in their hearts they really wanted to go into Iraq. I think they were just sort of swept in. Some of them did. Hillary Clinton famously voted for it, which made it very difficult for her to win the 2008 nomination because of it. Exactly. I mean, you could blame them. You said they should, they're leaders. They should act like leaders. They should act like scared children and just go along with 
whatever the Bush administration. And that's fair enough. The Afghanistan war, I think it's probably like the clearest case of just failure. I mean, the amount of money spent, the amount of lives, treasure, and like what was gotten was like, I mean, nothing. Like it collapsed immediately upon when the US was in the process of withdrawing. And it's like, even if it did succeed, it's not exactly certain like what the US would have gotten out of it. It was a really strange thing. I think exaggerating the threat of terrorism more generally. Look, like, I mean, 9 11 happened. It was a big dramatic event. There was going to be a reaction to that. But it was crazy in the aftermath. We thought that people would be blowing up shopping malls in North Dakota for the rest of our lives and we were going to have bloodbath. And that didn't happen. And I've seen some people say the establishment did a great job of fighting the war on terror. Maybe it's like there was just a couple dozen guys in a cave in Afghanistan and that was like the entirety of the threat. And you really didn't need to like fight war after war in country after country. If you did nothing, I mean, there probably would have been less. How did it prolong for so long? At some point, you would have thought like, especially the Obama administration, they're coming with a new fresh point of view. They didn't have to own it. There was a lot of opportunities for them to shut it down, but they did not shut it down at all. They kept it going at the same rate as it probably was for the second term of Bush. Why does it prolong for so long? I think that just the politics of this, there was just a lot of fear. I mean, in 2004, I think most people were saying, you know, the biggest thing I'm voting on is national security. And Republicans really saw an opportunity here. So Tom Ridge, who was a high official of the Bush administration, later he came out and he said they were manipulating this. Remember the color-coded thing where like we're in red, terror, we're in orange, green. He said they were just lifting it up and down based on the elections and based on trying to manipulate so it was like 9-11 was just such a massive event. There was going to be a reaction to that. People, it sort of distorted the culture. And I think a lot of people politically thought it could be a winner for them to rely on that. In 2002, Bush gained seats, the Republicans gained seats in the midterms. And it's very rare for a president in his first midterm to gain seats. It's like a historical anomaly just because it was such good politics for Republicans at the time. You're thinking about, okay, if I have one terrorist attack on my watch, it might kill 10 people. I mean, like, it's funny because we have like 20,000 murders in the US a year. Last few years, it's gone up a lot. That's thousands and thousands of murders. For a president, a dozen people die in a terrorist attack. It's a bigger deal than letting thousands of people die in just regular street crime or something else. We just have a very strong reaction. Sure, because, well, it could affect any of us. So we all get scared, which is reasonable. Yeah, but I mean, that's true of like murder. You're more likely to get killed randomly by your fellow American than you are by terrorism. That's true. That sure. would have been true in you know, the early 2000s. <laughs> so I think politicians just have had an incentive here. And there was just so much money, I mean, pushed into it. So we had like the TSA was formed. I mean, that's never going away. We take off our shoes. That's never going away. There was entire industries, terrorism studies, the people who make the scanners at the airports. I mean, there were just so much money thrown at this stuff. And there became such all these interests, just trillions going into Afghanistan and Iraq that it sort of created its own momentum. And we were just doing the war on terror and it's dying down a little bit, but like the aftermath is this, like stuff like the TSA. I mean, that's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. I think it was just 9-11 was such a dramatic event, sort of took on its own momentum. One thing that's interesting is if you think of almost any other country, if almost any other country had the debacle, the 20-year debacle that we had in Afghanistan, it would not only bring down the government, it would bring down the entire constitution of that country and there would be a revolution. And in the U.S., it was barely a blip on the political spectrum, even though we had this like massive debacle. Now, maybe because the debacle was so bipartisan, but it barely affected anything. And we're talking about trillions of dollars lost, thousands of lives lost, just all these opportunity costs. It was a terrible thing, but maybe it just shows how strong the U.S. actually is that we could have these terrible, terrible tragedy things and really not really affect the strength of the U.S. 
I think that's correct. I mean, Afghanistan, after the initial invasion in 2001, it was never that big of a political issue. I mean, it was never going to bring back, it was probably never like top five things that people were worrying about, maybe at the height of the during the Obama surge, when the casualty numbers went up. You're absolutely right. I mean, we have room to make a lot of mistakes. I mean, the Russians screwed up in Afghanistan. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed a few years later. It's probably not exactly a direct connection, but it probably contributed something. Russia and Ukraine now, I mean, Russia has this blunder in Ukraine. The entire world turns against it. I mean, it's going to be economically isolated from the West for the rest of our lives. And I think no matter what happens in the Russia-Ukraine, one prediction we can make is Russia will be very, very poor for a very, very long time. And that's because of the Ukraine war. They might have been poor anyway, but things are going to be much, much worse. And so you're absolutely right. We've been the strongest, most robust economy. I mean, China was coming up. Europe, I think, has made some bad policy choices. So Europe, the European Union is sort of an economic powerhouse, never matched the US. China was coming up. It's also made some terrible policy choices surrounding the COVID policies, Euro COVID. I think 2022 is going to be the first year in like decades and decades that the US actually grows faster than China because China has just shot itself over the foot because of this COVID stuff. I think probably because they care about maintaining power and maybe they've stumbled on a good way to do that. Russia, we just talked about. Has its problems. So there really isn't any challenger on the immediate horizon to, for American leadership. And I think that that means we can make a lot more mistakes in foreign policy. Even when I go back to like reading about how we executed World War II, like if you look at how we executed World War II in Europe, it just seems like debacle after debacle after debacle for the US. And then we still win. And so it's like, I guess because we're the US, we just have a lot more room for error than another country. Do you think about it similarly or? Exactly. Economic sort of growth and economic power is sort of fundamental to all of this. So the US past Great Britain became the biggest economy in the world, I think in the late 19th century. And it's far away. It has the geographical advantage of just like not being on the borders with any other great powers. And there's also policy choices. I think our system of government, federalism, and the fact that there's competition between the states and there's dynamism, we have some real advantages. And so foreign policy, I mean, it's hard to screw up. I think one of my focuses on talking about foreign policy is like, I just don't want us to fight a nuclear war. Because if we screw up and fight another war in Afghanistan, like that's probably bad and screwed up. But it's really, really hard for that to pose an existential risk. Right. Like just let's not get to a nuclear war and we can make all the mistakes we want, but just like, let's never get to a nuclear war. Exactly, exactly. And that's my feeling on the Ukraine thing. I think it's foreign policy actually looks good so far. I mean, I don't think anybody thought Ukraine would fight as well as it has. And actually, people were making plans for, oh, there must be an insurgency because they assumed Russia would take over Kiev. And it didn't happen. Ukraine survived just as a conventional, as a state, holding out the Russians and is now taking back territory. And I'm like, that's good for Ukraine. But still, I mean, the ultimate interest in the US and the world ultimately is avoiding a nuclear war here. And it's the same thing with China and Taiwan. That's the main problem of American foreign policy. You wrote a really highly critical piece of U.S. use of sanctions. And before I read that piece, I had been, I didn't question, I was like, oh, sanctions seems like a very good tool for us to use. And it's low impact and it's not kinetic. And there's a lot of other things and it seems relatively easy to deploy. And so I was definitely a fan of the sanctions. Walk us through why you're really so critical of them. I mean, American sanctions, they cause real economic damage to people. So often we will just cut off a country from the global economy. 
like take them off Swift or something. Yeah. And like not let anyone invest in them. And we have secondary sanctions where if you invest in them, we'll sanction you. Third party, you could be just like somebody else. You don't even have to be connected to the US. And so the damages are real. And often these countries will have bad policies, but doesn't mean the sanctions are doing like Cuba. There are some people who blame poverty of Cuba on US embargo, and the US embargo doesn't help. The main issue is the Cuban government. We see something similar in Venezuela, where they've had badly mismanaged economy for decades now. But then the real humanitarian crisis came in the last few years when the US put the most extensive sanctions and basically recognized the Guido quote-unquote government. They stopped recognizing the Maduro government. And that really, there's just a big difference. I mean, Venezuela was just going down the drain and the humanitarian crisis just became much worse after that. And now we're seeing a lot of the refugee outflow. These things are like, they have a very stickiness and they tend to have a big humanitarian effect if they work to like get countries to like, if Venezuela, if you put sanctions on Venezuela and that made the people overthrow the government and have a democracy and a capitalist state that became very successful, maybe you would say it was worth it. There's not a lot of evidence that that actually happens. There's countries we've sanctioned to the most extreme extent possible, like North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, Syria. And the governments of these countries put staying in power first. They put their foreign policy goals. And plus, these sanctions, I assume, are fairly porous. There's often ways around them. It increases the cost. If you're going to pay X for something, now you have to pay 1.2X or something like that. Yeah. Going into a foreign market is harder for Like, imagine, like, even if Syria was open, like, you want to go invest in Syria. Well, there's a language, there's distance, there's all these things. And then the US government is going to put you in jail if you invest in Syria. I mean, that's going to make it very difficult. But if I'm saying, if they want to buy a certain good, or something like that. They want to buy oil or they want to buy wheat or something. That They'll be able to get it somehow. They'll get the basics of life. But a lot of these countries, they have a lot to gain from like Western know-how, like Western managers, multinationals being on the ground, showing them how to do So you can't really get that sort of on the slide. There's a lot that you just can't get and the government can shut down. So the sanctions, I mean, there are some examples of like them. Here's the frustrating thing. There are a few examples of them, like at least bringing countries to the negotiating table. So this happened, I think, with Iran. We had sanctions on and then we had the Iranian nuclear deal where the US and the West was going to lift sanctions and Iran wasn't going to build a nuclear weapon. And this worked by according to everyone who was a party to it. So it wasn't just the US, but it was the UK, France, Germany, Russia were all involved in this. I think P5 plus one. And then we just ripped it up. I mean, there was just a change in administrations because there's parts of the foreign policy establishment, mostly on the right, who just doesn't want any deal with Iran and all they're interested is in regime change. And so like the sanctions on Iran don't matter because they're not going to change behavior because I don't think no matter what Iran does, I don't think we're ever going to have like normal relations with them unless the current government just collapses or renounces and just says we have a completely different ideology, a completely different system. And so this is a frustrating thing. It's like they usually don't work, but they could work in theory and they have sort of worked in certain circumstances, but we don't have sort of a policy follow through. We don't have the grand strategy, so to speak, to make sure that it all does work. Random question, but your book, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, I saw it was priced at $160, which is, I thought it was 10 times more than most books I read. Do you have like some sort of sly strategy about that? Like, oh, it's priced so high. It must be a great book or something. (laughs) I don't set the price. So the way academia works is, so I am a lapsed academic. I was a research fellow until 2020. And so this was supposed to be an academic book. And the way academic books work is sometimes they think that it could be a very popular book. So an academic publisher will sell something for 20 bucks or whatever, normal price. And sometimes their entire strategy 
is to just to get assigned in class or something like yes, that. Yes, or get it at libraries. Like they want to sell a thousand of them for 150 bucks each. And like nobody spent their own money. They're so inflexible because I had a little bit of attention. I'm like, this can actually sell a lot of things. Can't we just price it normally? They're so inflexible. It doesn't seem like they could even compute like changing their plan for the book. <laughs> it made like the political science bestsellers. I looked at everything else that was the bestseller. There was nothing that was like $150. They were right, all of course. Books. So this could have sold a lot better. It's like 40 for the Kindle edition, I mean, which is a little more reasonable, but still too high. So that's a legacy of me having been an academic, but now on I can write books that people assume that other people will read. Okay, so that's, that's good. <laughs> You have this quote that I like, I think it says something like, if you want to truly succeed, you have to set out to kill anxiety. Essentially, you're saying like confidence is a prerequisite for success. In academic world, I think it's classically filled with people who have anxiety. How do you go about killing that in the academic world? That was in the context of an article just about sort of self-help. So I think that anxiety, there was an evolutionary adaptive reason for it because we lived in situations where if you had social embarrassment or you had failure to grow crops or something, I mean, you would die. Your life was always on the line. In our modern world, we still have that hardware where we're living in fear, like we're on the brink of death, but we really aren't. So like if you're getting embarrassed today, somebody you'll never see again, it just doesn't matter. And that wasn't true for most of our history. So I sort of stumbled on the idea that I think anxiety is just like a big hindrance to people's lives. And it's not simply like social relations. Oh, I want to go talk to this person and I want to be friends with them or network or something. That's part of it. And anxiety will, of course, prevent you from doing that. Even though in solitary work, something like academia, which is one of the most solitary professions there is, you're spending a lot of time researching and writing on your own from people I know it will stop you from working. It's like a mental tax. I mean, it does cloud your thinking. It makes you uncertain. So how do you stop that? Like if someone has it, how do they stop it? What's worked for me and all I can speak of is what's worked for me is basically, first of all, the social anxiety you can overcome, I think, by just practice. You could just destroy it. Yeah, just go up to random enough. people or speak at a group or whatever. Yeah. I mean, go to like, I don't know if kids go to shopping malls these days, but just go to the mall and just talk to like random people. It will become like second nature. I think also like just understanding sort of where anxiety comes from. To me, having like a evolutionary explanation, this is sort of what people do in cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't think you need the therapist for it. You could just do it yourself. You could just sit there and say, these are irrational emotions. I understand when I feel them and I can incrementally make progress. I don't think it's any rocket science to it that I think most people can make. But like when I'm on an airplane and there's a lot of turbulence or something, I know it's irrational to be scared, but I definitely get the flutters anyway and I get a little scared anyway. When I do that, I mean, I will just sit there to myself and be like, statistically, this is a plane. This is the safest place you could be. This is literally the safest place you could be. You're out of the street. You're in much more danger. You're at home. You're probably in equal amount of danger. And that helps. I've heard stories of where you take people from like Amazon tribes. If they are exposed to like modernity, they'll be scared to death of like cars and play like these big, giant, hulking pieces of metal. Us, we sort of get used to it. And I think social anxiety can be the exact same way. You recently joined a suit against the CFTC over its plan to shut down Predicted, which is a political betting site. Obviously, like there's a lot of people who really love these kind of future markets out there. Why is it so hard to get something like that going in the US, whereas other countries are more open to these types of things? I don't know. There's just government regulations. It's not like there was ever like any congressional bill. I mean, I think they're relying on, it's like there's some statutory legislation where they take it and then they have interpretations like of the betting. If levels. it's betting, it's this or whatever it is. Yeah. We've made exceptions for like sports betting. It's very strange. I mean, like 
there's a, I guess, an idea that it's sort of achy to do this. I mean, there was betting markets. They tried to set some up decades ago for within the government. And then somebody had like a terrorism market. And then like a congressman came out and they demagogued it. And they said, oh, people's lives, you're betting on this. But I think markets have a social good. I mean, they provide information. They allow us to have ideas about forecasting the future. We have sort of idea of where the consensus is. We let people bet their money on sports. We let people gamble their life savings on the stock market. And we have casinos. And it's like this one area where you have a particular societal interest. I mean, a stronger societal interest in having information about the future of policy outcomes or election outcomes than there is who's going to win the football game on Sunday. It's interesting in politics, like there are these things where you're allowed to bet on like a very slight derivative of the question, but you can't bet on the exact question. Like if I want to bet, will the Fed raise interest rates over half a point in the next three months? I'm not allowed to bet on that exact question, but I could just bet on the general bond market, which is essentially betting on that question. Even in an election, like you may not, a presidential election will have a lot of implications. Maybe oil stocks will go up or something or down depending on who gets in power. So you can bet on like the slight derivative, but you can't bet on like who's going to win the presidential race. Yeah, exactly. It's completely irrational. I mean, now you can actually, for at least one website, Kelshi, they basically got permission to do some of these markets. And they have stuff like interest rates, things that are very good, not elections, though. They're trying to get elections. They haven't gotten like explicit permission for that yet. The predicted thing is very strange because they've let them operate for a few years now. The idea was there's some limits. There's 850 per contract. They couldn't be for profit. It had to be for research purposes. And then out of nowhere, recently, they just sent them a letter saying, okay, you guys didn't follow the rules. They hadn't been doing anything differently. Don't put any more markets up and then liquidate everything by February 2023, which they have no idea how to do that. As predicted says in the complaint, they have no idea how to do that for the stuff that's going to not settle until 2024. It's unfortunate. The legal case, it has a chance here because government agencies, they get deference, but this is completely arbitrary. I'm optimistic they'll at least have to explain sort of what they're doing and why. I'm just happy to be part of a lawsuit because I think this stuff is important. I think it's good for intellectual discourse. We can sit there and we can say, okay, I think Biden's going to be reelected. And you could say no. And then we can have like a benchmark. Okay. The betting market says it's 40%. What do you think? It's higher or lower. It's good to just sort of have that accountability mechanism. I personally, myself, I've had some subsects where I post my portfolio over time. So I'm like, should you even listen to me? Like, why should you listen to me? Who am I? Like, how do you know that I know what I'm talking about? So I'll post my portfolio and say it's X amount of money. And then after like a year or something, it's Y and I've made some money. So at least I could forecast events. It's better than chance or just better on relying whatever. Oh, got it. That's cool. I've done that a few times. And I mean, that's good. I want more people to do stuff like that. So it's just really unfortunate. And anyone who's listening to this, who's a journalist or part of a media outlet, I think cover this. I think this looks really bad for the government. I think a lot of people, no matter what their politics, they have gotten used to either using predicted or like relying on it to sort of get an idea of where the market is on what's going to happen in various elections and things like that. So I think public pressure can make a difference here. There's a belief, maybe a popular belief in the US that experts today are less right, they're less correct than they were in the past. So the expert opinion is less true today than it used to be. Do you believe that? And if so, like, why has this happened? It's hard to compare it to the past. I mean, like the 1950s, they had like lobotomies before Afghanistan and Iraq, there was Vietnam. I mean, so experts have had- Okay, good point. Yeah. Huge failures. 
I don't know how one can compare. I think that we're in a more information rich. Well, certainly people are less believing in experts today than they used to be. Would you agree with that? I think that's right. And I think if you look at any poll of like trust in various institutions, science, the universities, whatever, it's gone down over time. So that's unquestionably true. Do you think that trust is warranted? Like, do you think the degradation of trust is warranted? It's hard to say because it's compared to what? It's like compared to just people sort of going by their feelings of what they think is true. Should people listen to that rather than experts? I don't know. I think there is too much trust and expertise probably in the media and among academics, educated people more generally. And then whether the public has too much or too little, it's really hard to say. I think that a lot of it's just the information-rich environment. You could see when they've been wrong and people can bring it up time and time again. I think Twitter has been a really big deal. You could see these people. It's sort of different if you could see these people's reaction to events in real time. So if you have this epidemiologist, they can write a smart-looking op-ed in the New York Times. It just makes them seem like neutral and looking at the data. And then you go to their Twitter and it's like, hashtag resistance, these crazy Republicans, they're killing everybody. And like, oh, wait a minute, this person is just like emotional and political. And maybe this whole idea that they're neutral actors is just sort of a facade. So I think that a lot of these people really have been exposed just because they can't help themselves. I think institutions in general, I think we've seen education polarization. A lot of them, I think that they're sort of their identity has come from like, instead of being an engineer or an epidemiologist or a doctor, I think the sort of the people's identities has become more, I'm liberal rather than conservative. I think this has sort of eaten everything. And so that's made them more partisan and just made them unable to sort of differentiate what their partisan wishes are from actual science or what data is saying. I have found that the most likely people to trust experts are experts in other fields. Like if you're an expert, you kind of want to rally around the idea of trusting experts. And the people least likely to trust experts are people who don't necessarily think of themselves as an expert in a particular field. Is that a good framework? I think that's very interesting because I think that's right. I think that a lot of people who are experts, they have real knowledge. So if you're a petroleum engineer, you probably are a serious person and partisan politics is not affecting how you look at the issue or how people you know look at the issue. And you see that like there's an actual output from your expertise that corresponds to something in the real world. And so then you never thought carefully about sociology or criminology or something. And you think, oh, they're just like me. They're scientists. You might not have politics. If you're a petroleum engineer, you just, you're vaguely whatever. Yeah. Or you're a heart surgeon or whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then you might think, oh, well, a sociologist is just like someone who takes the scientific reasoning and takes it to human issues. And if all sociologists are saying X, Y, and Z, I should believe them. I, someone who's been through academia, I think that's the wrong way to see it. I think a lot of people go into these human sciences because they have very strong ideological priors and they go, they build communities where all those priors get confirmed. So I think that's right. So you have like these people who are doing hard sciences who just have a natural, understandable, instinct to trust experts. And then you have the people doing the fake stuff. And the people who are doing the fake stuff are, of course, going to trust the other people who are doing the fake stuff. <laughs> and all the experts seem to agree on everything. All right, this has been awesome. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests. What is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? I think people underestimate the returns to being strange or being an outlier in some way. I'll say in my own field, like I write a lot about politics and issues. And I think a lot of people, they were looking at me in the earlier, like, oh, you're going to alienate conservatives with this. You're going to alienate liberals with this. You're not really going to fit into any category. When I read your stuff, I can't even tell if you're a liberal or conservative. It's like you're kind of a mashup in a way. (laughs) 
thank you. I mean, that's the thing. It's like the market is saturated with people who think tribal ways are trying to appeal to one group or the other. So that would be the opening for somebody who's just a little bit different. And I think that's a broadly applicable lesson. I mean, I think that there's people ask me like, what's my job? I say, I'm on Substack and Twitter. My job is something that five years ago didn't exist. There was no reason to think this could be my job. This could be my profession before I started. I was actually on the academic path for a while. And I just started sort of dipping my toes in the water of just writing for the public, doing op-eds, Twitter, substacks, And that just really just took off. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is much better than academia. I could say what I want. I could write about what I want. I could reach a much bigger audience. I can have more freedom. I think that we are in general, I mean, this goes back to the anxiety point. We are too anxious. We are too risk averse. And especially for the kind of smart, creative people who would listen to this podcast, I think they're probably not ambitious and imaginative enough about what they can do with their lives. Oh, this is awesome. Thank you, Richard and Anya, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at Richard and Anya on Twitter. I also subscribe to your Substack, which I love. I encourage listeners to engage with you in both those places. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Oren. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 